Welcome to In Session, Conversations with University Counselors. I'm your host, Dinah Jansen. In this series, we welcome a number of Queen's University alumni who serve on Queen's University Council. And from them, we learn much about their time as students at Queen's, their career paths after convocation, and what drives their motivations to serve the Queen's community as council members. Welcome and enjoy. Hello, everyone. I am in my virtual studio with Jim Leach, the 14th Chancellor at Queen's University and Chair of University Council. Jim, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Well, it's great to be here, Diana. So tell us a little bit about yourself and your role as Chair of University Council. Sure. Wow. Um, where do I start? So why don't I, I start at the beginning? I uh, grew up as an army brat. That means that my father was in the army and um, we were posted across the country. So I, I would say I grew up as a Canadian um, uh, across the country. We had many postings to Kingston though. So I did know Kingston um, uh, quite well. Um, and one of the interesting things is, you know, many army brats, when you're changing school systems so often, um, you, get, you kind of get penalized in that uh, you get set back or because the curriculums across the various provinces don't match. It actually worked the opposite for me. And I got uh, ahead in school and graduated from high school at the age of 16. Um, I then went to the Royal Military College across the lake um, and took an honors math and science degree. Uh, following that, I served three years in the Canadian forces most of that in Germany with uh, with NATO. I was mm -hmm. um, part of the Royal Van Duziem Regiment, so I worked entirely in French, um, and it was a great time. It was the height of the Cold War, so we were on guard against um, uh, the Russian forces coming across the border. Um, but uh, it was it was a it was a great way to spend my early twenties. Uh, I decided to leave the forces and went to Queens to do an MBA. Uh, and then following Queens, I had a uh, 40 plus year business career that spanned Montreal, Calgary and Toronto uh, until I retired uh, five, uh, in 2014. Mm -hmm. And since retirement, I've dedicated myself to nonpartisan public service and philanthropic leadership. So besides my position as Queen's Chancellor, I chaired the MasterCard Foundation, which is one of the largest foundations in the world, uh, focused on Africa. I'm the Chair Emeritus at the Toronto General and Western Hospital Foundation, a big hospital foundation in Toronto. I chair the Institute for Sustainable Finance at the Smith School of Business, and I'm an honorary colonel in the Canadian Forces. I've also had other kind of appointments uh, during my retirement. I was special advisor to Prime Minister Trudeau to establish the uh, Canada Infrastructure Bank. My wife, Deb Barrett, she's a Western grad. We don't advertise that. Oh. <laughs> um, she's also retired from a very high powered position. She was the chief financial officer for the Thompson family. Uh, mm. So Thompson Reuters, Globe and Mail, etc. We have three married kids who are in their early 40s, um, a family each in Toronto, Waterloo, and Dallas, Texas, 
and seven grandkids aged uh, two to 15. So that's, that's me. Um, with regard to University Council and my involvement at Queen's, um, I first uh, became a member of University Council in uh, 1979, uh, believe it or not. That time, Council was huge. There were over, you know, well over 100 members. Um, we got together uh, once a year uh, to deliberate on various things, etc. But I would say it wasn't a... Um, it wasn't a terribly functional organization at that time. Uh, it, it, was, it was kind of a gathering of a large number of alumni who were interested in the university um, and with whom the administration could interact, uh, but it, it wasn't, it, it didn't really have, um, I don't know how to say it, it didn't, it, its purpose wasn't really well defined. Um, from the University Council, I was then drafted onto the board's uh, investment committee and uh, later onto the advisory board of, at that time, the Queen's School of Business, now Smith, and then finally onto the board where I served actually for 13 years on the board of directors under three principals, uh, uh, Watts, Smith, and Leggett. Mm -hmm. uh, and then with regard to the Smith Advisory Board, I, I actually had three different stints there too, uh, over about 40 years, um, and which included being chair uh, three times. I was chair and then stepped down and somebody else took over, but then that person, for some reason or other, couldn't carry on, so they redrafted me. Well, that happened three different times, so kept bringing me out of retirement to do that. <laughs> okay, so thank you for sharing so much about yourself and and uh, your career, your family, and also the work that you've done at Queen's University on the on the many boards that you've sat on. So let's go back, if we can, a little bit further, Jim. Let's go back to when you were actually a student at Queen's University. What were you studying back then, and what kinds of activities were you engaged in outside of your coursework? Well, as I, as I mentioned, I had been in the Army, uh, and I came to Queen's in 1971, directly from the Army, uh, moved back from uh, Germany, um, was married, and uh, we had an Irish setter. That was our family. Um, <laughs> Fortunately, I had received um, uh, some scholarships, so we were able to fund both my wife and myself going back to school. The original plan was um, that uh, we had saved up enough money that I could do my uh, postgraduate degree um, and supplement it by um, supply teaching in uh, public schools, teaching French and, and math, um, and also by breeding our dog. We figured we could earn enough money doing those two activities um, that uh, uh, we could live for those two years. Uh, well, it didn't work out that well in that uh, I spent one my first day as a supply teacher at a high school in Kingston teaching French and math. And you can imagine if you think back to when you were in high school and they say, oh, we got a supply teacher and they're teaching math and French. <laughs> um, it was probably the most... <laughs> The hardest job I'd ever done and I decided supply teaching wasn't for me after that 
And for some reason or other, our dog never fell in love. So we didn't ever get any any uh, funds that way either. But so, as I say, fortunately, I earned some scholarships and, and my wife and I were both able to go back to school. And now we'd been out of the country for three years. And so in a way needed a, what the MBA afforded me was a decompression chambers, so to speak, to a reacclimatize to Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, also had to, to figure out a way to make a living. And that's why we, I chose the um, Master's in Business Administration. And it was still a relatively new phenomenon. MBAs were not uh, as ubiquitous as they are today in Canadian business. And, and for me, it was... Um, my first foot step into business. I had no role models to follow. My entire family had been in the military, my brother, my father, my uncle, everybody. Um, and I, so I had no role models to say, this is what business is all, all about. So it was a whole mm-hmm. new world to me. Uh, now, the big surprise that I found was that my army experience was actually very relevant. Um, and, and it was particularly on the leadership and management side. You know, I learned, I learned in the Army how to manage up and down. Um, also helped that I had a tendency to call uh, people older than me, sir. That seemed to work very well as well. So um, uh, it wasn't as tough an adjustment as I had thought. Now, my Queen's experience was not that of an undergrad. Um, I was there only for two years. I, you know, was up to my ears in writing a thesis. Uh, plus, I was married, so it was a mm-hmm. bit of a different experience than most of the Queen's grads. We lived on the edge of McDonald Park, and that allowed me to nip back between classes to walk our dog. And also, my my parents had retired in Kingston, so we did have a place to go for Sunday dinner when, when the budget was starting to get a little stretched and getting tired of eating nothing but mac and cheese. Uh, did you take your laundry home too? Yes, I did. I did. <laughs> that was the Sunday ritual. We'd go watch um, uh, uh, football while we did our laundry and then have dinner, which was pretty nice. Activity. You asked about activities. Um, yeah. I was active in intramural sports, played um water polo, flag football, hockey, volleyball. Tried out for the rugby team um, because I played rugby when I was at military college and also when I was in Germany. Uh, But that looked as though that was going to be too much of a commitment given everything else that we have Mm -hmm. on our schedule. Spent a lot of time at the old gym, which is now, of course, uh, Mitchell Hall. I was elected class president in both my first and second year and and had various jobs on campus, both summer jobs and during um, the school year, marking tests, a bit of tutoring, some research assistance. Uh, And then of course, spent a lot of time in my second year uh, looking for employment. What what was I gonna do for the rest of my life? Um, so, So in reality, the two years that I was on campus flew by in, in a, you know, in seconds. Well, I assume too, you made some good friends in the meantime. Do you have some lifelong friends out of your class? Yes. And interestingly enough, I had about uh, 
three classmates who were uh, had that I'd been to RMC with, and so reconnected with them. Uh, but then also a, a a number of 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 very good friends that I've stayed in touch with over the years. Amazing. So. Thank you so much for sharing, too, a little bit about your uh, career trajectory since graduation. Maybe we can talk about it a little bit more. I think some students, for example, would love to uh, hear more about the the trail that you blazed when you left your MBA program and that two years you said that you were thinking about what was happening, what were you going to do with the rest of your life. Can you tell us a little bit more about it and how you made your way to the top echelons of many boards and corporations throughout your career. Sure. So when I graduated, it was 1973, and the market was very robust, particularly for MBAs. Um, and and any, any graduating student now will go, oh, my gosh, I wish I lived in those times. Because, you know, we used to laugh and say that if you didn't have five job offers uh, upon graduation, there was something wrong. Um, it was a very robust market. Um, I had no idea what I really wanted to do. As I said, the two years in, at, uh, at Queens was my only introduction to business. I started applying it to, you know, Bell Canada and to the federal government, um, et cetera. And I'd come away from the interviews, keep saying to myself, gee, that feels a little big you know, a little large of an organization. I don't know if I could have any real influence, et cetera. And I eventually worked my way down uh, to uh, a very small company in Montreal, um, which was only, had only three people. So I started applying with Bell Canada and the federal government, and I ended up with this small company. Um, If you look at my career, uh, the 40 years, I would say it's a series of kind of seven different episodes. Um, They were five to seven year stints at various organizations in a multitude of industries. So real estate, energy, mortgage lending, trust company, merchant banking, technology, private equity, and finally pension management. The theme that runs through it is I joined an organization when it was small, um, participated in building it up, um, sold it, or moved on. So let's go back to the beginning. This small company in Montreal, as I said, there were three employees. I told my mother that I started second from the top. I didn't tell her there were only three people there. Um, <laughs> it was an interesting uh, uh, time. We um, were building a little financial services and real estate company through acquisition. And um, that was fine, except when one of our acquisitions in Calgary got itself into trouble. So I was dispatched at the ripe old age of about 27 uh, to go to Calgary on my own and, uh, and turn the business around, which I did, which was a huge learning experience. Um, so, you know, getting involved in a troubled business isn't all that bad if you're learning. We sold that company and and I moved on. That that got me to Toronto. And in a similar way, um, I joined another smaller company. It had only a handful of employees. Um, this time, I legitimately was second from the top. 
Um, and I subsequently became its president. And it was a company called Unicorp. And we built a large real estate and energy operations through acquisitions in Canada and the United States. That was a pretty heady time in the financial markets that takeover bids going on all over the place. And we were right in the middle of that. One um, particular uh, messy, hostile takeover that we did was a, a Canadian company called Union Gas that attracted a lot of media attention. Um, mm -hmm. And we were, but we were able to build it into one of the largest energy companies in North America. We eventually sold it. As I said, there's a theme here. Um, and I went into the high tech business, knowing nothing about technology, but it was kind of the start of, uh, of the, the new revolution of technology. I headed two companies in technology business. One was highly successful from a financial perspective. Uh, the other one, not so. Um, uh, so, you know, I took a few bruises on that last one and, and uh, was licking my wounds over that when I was approached by the Ontario Teachers Pension Plan. I was originally hired to build the private investing business worldwide. Um, and in seven years, we grew that portfolio from $2 billion to $28 billion six wow. investment professionals to 35 professionals. Um, and we were ranked number one as a private equity firm in the world uh, from a performance perspective. I was subsequently made the chief executive officer and oversaw the asset growth uh, to 140 billion. And we were ranked number one in investment performance and customer service in the world and we were fully funded. So the pensions for the 350,000 teachers and retired teachers of Ontario were, were secure. There was a pretty heady time as teachers was at the forefront of introducing what became known uh, as the Canadian model of pension management to the world. And, and today it still is held up as the global innovator. So it was a it was a privilege and honor and a really exciting time uh, to be with them then. So, you know, when, when you're at the top at that time, I, by that time I was sort of 67 years old. And so I did the smart thing, which is that I wrote a best-selling book about pension management and I retired. <laughs> and now I use uh, all those rich learnings from those 40 years to apply to, um, a number of philanthropic activities. Thank you so much. Uh, I've learned so much from about you in this very short amount of time, and I'm sure that our listeners, alumni, and students alike are really going to appreciate learning more about the journey from uh, being an Army brat to uh, all the way through your career right to retirement, and now you're having a nice day in Muskoka, right. relaxing. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Okay, so you have uh, not talked yet too much about your role as university chancellor or the or your role as chair of university council. So what do you do in these respective roles? Well, let's talk about the uh, chancellorship first. Um, and I, I will say that um, uh, it's important to understand that the roles of chancellor are very different at every university. 
Indeed. Um, in, in the United States, for example, it is actually a senior member of administration. But in Canada, it is largely a ceremonial position. And, and when my grandkids ask me uh, what I do as chancellor, I always say that the chancellor, I am to Queens what the governor general is to Canada. And what I mean by that is I'm the highest office in the land, um, but I have absolutely no authority. So it's this very funny position, much the same as the governor general. Mm -hmm. The real authorities, the only real authorities are, number one, the conferring of degrees. So graduates, you know, you, you can't get your degree unless you walk across that stage and shake my hand. Or if you look at the parchment, my signature's there. Um, second is that um, uh, the chancellor chairs the principal renewal or search committee. So mm -hmm. the process by which um, Principal Dean um, took over from Principal Wolf, that was a committee that I chaired. Um, and then uh, secondly is uh, chairing university council. Now, I'm also ex officio member of the board of trustees and every committee imaginable. Like, I mean, every week there's another committee that I didn't realize I sat on. Um, the job brings me on campus at least twice a month for various meetings, events, some of them black tie events, etc. some speaking engagement, or something as simple as having a pot potluck dinner with a few students in the chaplain's office or breakfast at Four Directions Center. Mm -hmm. And of course there's homecoming um, and 25 convocations in the spring and in the fall over which I must preside. Uh, incidentally, you can always tell if I'm on campus as when I'm on campus, there's a very distinctive flag called the Chancellor Standard which is flown from the top of Grant Hall. Um, so if you're ever walking down University Avenue and you look up and you see the flag on the top of Grant Hall, you know that I'm on campus. Um, I also have living quarters, the chancellor has living quarters attached to Summerhill, which makes it far easier when you're, you know, have to be on campus for 25 convocations, at least I got someplace to go back and have a cup of coffee and relax. Uh, between ceremonies. Oh, yes, because if, if you have three ceremonies in a row for several days in a row. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> plus, you need a meal. Yeah. <laughs> it's a, and, it's a lot know, of time. No, I can go back and, you know, take my tie off and sit in the sun in the sun porch there and just relax. <laughs> there's, there's no, the, you know, the as I said, there's kind of no legislated power other than the three that I am. Um, uh, noted. Um, but the chancellor does have the power of moral suasion, much the same as the governor general. Okay. If the chancellor takes an interest in something, hmm. people notice it. So for example, when I showed up at hearings uh, by the consultation process uh, of the Truth and Reconciliation Task Force or the sexual violence uh, consultations, 
people noted that. And it's a, you know, it, it allowed me to bring some impetus uh, to those initiatives. Um, it's a fascinating position as chancellor. As you noted, there's um, only been 14 of them in our 180 year history. Um, and uh, if you look at the 14 names, you'll see former prime ministers, former governor generals, former um, provincial premiers and a whole bunch of industry titans. So I'm not sure how I fit in there, but um, it's truly an honor. So hot take, Jim. You, you also mentioned you've sat on so many committees. This is our little hot take. What's the largest agenda item? How many pages have you ever seen in an agenda item for a meeting? Oh, I've been to some meetings where you get 200 pages of agenda items. Hot take. The board, um, the board meetings can be long. Pro probably it's the uh, finance audit and finance uh, committee on the uh, on the board, uh, where you know there will be. Now the agenda may only be two or three pages long, but all the material that comes with it, I've seen them up to 400 pages. Oh. <laughs> so thank heavens for. Um, uh, you know, uh, the electronic uh, board assist now, um, it used to be that you'd, you'd get that in a big pile of paper. Fortunately, um, you know, one page weighs the same amount as 500 pages when it's electronic. <laughs> Thank goodness for PDFs. <laughs> Okay, so uh, thank you so much, too, for sharing so much about your role as Chancellor. For some folks at Queen's University, especially new students, the Chancellor is this mysterious role, and some people don't know it or who you are until they're crossing the stage and collecting their degree in a handshake from you. I often say that the role is to preside over all the happy events. Yes, <laughs> um, it is so true um, because I'm not burdened by, you know, the work of administration or operations. I just didn't get to come out and, you know, cut the ribbon at Mitchell Hall or at uh, the Smith School of Business or or um, hand people their degrees. Um, so there's a lot of cheer in in what I do. Great. So let's hear more about your role as chair of University Council. What is University Council and what do you do for it? Well, University Council is a unique uh, institution to Queens. Um, there are no other universities that I know of that have this kind of third uh, quasi-governance body. Most universities will have a Senate, um, which of course looks after the academic side and the board of trustees that it looks after the business side. And so, you know, it's, a, it's referred to as a bicameral system of two governance bodies. Queens has this anomaly called University Council, which is quasi-governance. So in, in some ways it's um, tricameral. So council dates back to the 1870s. Mm -hmm. At that point, uh, the university had actually gotten itself into some financial trouble. Um, and um, the principal was able to pull together a group of alumni benefactors who, in effect, bailed the university out. 
And those benefactors, though, said, you know, you know, we put up the, the money to uh, get the university back on its feet. Um, we want to make sure it doesn't go off the rails again. So we want to formalize um, a body representing alumni who um, can give you advice and whose advice you must listen to. You don't have to take it, but you must listen to it. So that's the genesis of university council. Um, membership over the years grew to be very large, as I said, around 150 members, I think um, it, it got to. Um, and it until about 10 years ago, when it underwent a reform in conjunction with the board in that um, uh, all of the governance bodies were looked at. And its membership was brought down to 44 members, 40 of whom are elected by alumni. So that's how we sit now with a 44-person um, uh, university council. What are its roles? Well, its, it's first and foremost role is to give advice to the administration. As I said, the administration doesn't have to take the advice, but they must receive the advice. Mm -hmm. It also has an, an ambassadorial role um, in taking the university out to the community. Um, that's a role that is, has in the last two or three years become more important and kind of being fleshed out a little bit more as to exactly what that means. But it's involvement with alumni branches um, and, and basically taking the story out to uh, our stakeholders. Third role is that it selects the chancellor. Um, so it is currently going through a process of looking for my uh, successor. Uh, and um, they'll finish their deliberation sometime in the first quarter of 2021. And, um, and then uh, the fourth role I would say is that it elects six of its own members to the 25 person board of trustees. So six out of the 25 board members um, uh, come from um, council. They also do a number of other things have been sort of tucked underneath them administratively. For example, they administer and choose um, awardees under for the Distinguished Service Awards at Queen's. Mm -hmm. So those are the activities they do. They meet annually um, for two days over a weekend, um, usually in November. Um, and there's a very tight agenda um, with reports from administration and usually um, one or two topics for the council to take a deep dive on and give advice to the administration. So um, as you can imagine, this last November, which we did virtually, um, the main topic uh, that we spent a lot of time on, well, two topics, I guess, sorry. Uh, first was a follow-up to uh, Principal Dean's conversation with the community. Um, so he was reporting um, about the results of his conversation and lots of give and take and advice 
an input to the strategic plan was given. Mm-hmm. And then secondly, uh, uh, lengthy discussions on the topics of uh, EDII, uh, equity, diversity, inclusion, and indigenization. Um, my role really is that I chair those meetings. Um, and then there are meetings of uh, the, the council has an executive committee and it's got a nominating committee. It's got various committees um, that meet periodically uh, during the year. Executive committee probably meets four times a year, um, usually uh, not in person, but either by phone or by Zoom, um, at which the business of council is furthered between the November meetings. Okay, thank you so much. That's an incredible amount of detail. And again, we've learned so much. We, we really do appreciate it. Okay, so we are nearing the end of our spot today, Jim. Um, I also understand that University Council uh, has a nomination period coming up. So they, that means that there will be elections to University Council for interested Queen's University alumni. In your view, Jim, why should alumni consider running for a University Council position? And ultimately, what inspired you? You started in the 70s. Why did you get back? Why did you get involved? Sure. Well, you know, I, I first of all, I'd encourage any alumni who is in a position and wants to give back to their alma mater in terms of time and expertise to think seriously about uh, running for university council. You know, over the next few years with a new strategic plan being developed by Principal Dean and, and the board, um, we know that there are going to be a number of challenges. Uh, two are, you know, just off the top of my uh, head are the are EDII, and uh, the second one would be internationalization. I mean, those are big, meaty topics um, and challenges that the university is going to be facing. Um, and these are areas where the principal and his team can benefit from alumni input, from their expertise, what they're seeing in the, quote, outside world, um, uh, and, you know, what's worked and what hasn't worked in, in, in those areas to help them. And there's also the ambassadorial role, as I said, which is critical, taking the Queen's story to alumni as well as to other stakeholders. And I use, for example, the um, uh, recent uh, denaming decision of the law school building. I mean, that was, that's an opportunity that members of council who uh, can, can take the rationale out to the rest of the world, to, to, to their fellow alumni, but also to non-alums, um, to explain the situation and why Queens made um, this decision. Um, you know, that's a very important role. So, um, you know, as, as I said, I encourage anyone uh, to do it. Recently, Queens has signed on to the 50-30 pledge as well, and that is where they've pledged that the governance bodies and the senior administration teams will be gender equal and 30% from designated groups. I'm pleased to say that the board and council already meet these diversity commitments, but it, it, it's also an opportunity Council's an opportunity to make sure that 
the voice of diversity is heard uh, and understood at the highest levels at, at the university. Why did I get involved at the beginning? I guess um, I was I was flattered when a, a group of um, uh, alumni came to me and said, would I put my hand up um, and run for council? I didn't know much about it at the time. Uh, I was living in Toronto. Uh, it was an opportunity to get back to campus at least once a year. Um, and so in, in reality, I, it, if truth be known, I probably didn't know what I was getting myself into, nor did I realize that it was the first step and a long journey of um, involvement with um, various governance bodies at Queen's culminating in the position of Chancellor. Wow. Okay. Thank you so much. Have you anything else to add about Queen's University, your role as Chancellor, University Council, life in general? <laughs> life in general. Well, you know, let's hope we get back to some form of normality. It's going to be a different world um, when we're all vaccinated and can come out of uh, hibernation and um, in, in start to interact again. Life will change, you know, the world will change. Um, you know, it's amazing how quickly the university moved online um, in, a, in a matter of of uh, days, really. Um, and will we go back to the same models that we had before? Probably not. We probably mm -hmm. find some new ways of, uh, of pedagogy, um, new ways to interact with each other uh, that we'll keep. And so there will be a new normal. Um, but I can hardly wait to get back to it. I mean, Queens has done an incredible job to date. Um, and Kingston has done tremendous job. And uh, it's it's very gratifying to see the university and the city working so closely together on this um, uh, during this this pandemic. So anything else to add? I guess how we always end these things, right? By saying kaya, 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 never surrender. Perfect way to finish up a great, uh, great conversation. Thank you very much, Jim, for joining us in the virtual studio today. And gosh, I look forward to a time when maybe we can all be in person again and a hearty handshake <laughs> will be in Absolutely. order too. So uh, virtual high five in the meantime. Yeah, what, what, what if somebody told me, they said you should say, um, uh, stay positive, but test negative. <laughs> Perfect advice. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Jim. All right. Well, super. Thanks very much, Dinah. everyone. Welcome to another edition of In Session, Conversations with University Counselors. My name is Dinah Jansen, and I have the great pleasure to welcome Judith Brown into our studio today, Queen's University alumna and member of Queen's University Council. Welcome, Judith. 
Oh, thank you. My pleasure to be here. And it's so great to hear your voice. And I look forward to a time when we can all be together in person. But it's pretty great that we're able to connect virtually in the meantime. Oh, boy, I think many of us are waiting for that time. Indeed, indeed. So, Judith, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, and maybe a little bit about your career? Ah, yes. Well, I was born in Bermuda. Mm-hmm. And it was in Bermuda that I got uh, really started at Queen's University, because back in the days I had graduated from Teachers College, and uh, the Bermuda government decided to have set up a relationship with Queen's University, which they did. And uh, so we had a few professors who came down each summer uh-huh. and taught Queen and taught students uh, university courses. So it, it was mighty interesting because I could stay at home and uh, the, uh, the parameters were you, we could work there and during the winter we could do our correspondence courses, but we had to spend at least one year on Queens campus. So my final and my third and final year was spent on Queens campus. So it was, it was pretty exciting. Amazing, amazing. And so tell us about your career path since your time at Queen's University. Uh, Since my time at Queen's University, I got married to another Queen's graduate. And uh, uh, he was he was already working here. And so uh, we decided to stay in Kingston. So I have been in Kingston uh, you know, I feel like I'm one of those stones of Kingston. I've been here for over 50 years, <laughs> 51 years to be exact. And during that time, I uh, took on many teaching jobs, worked at the prison for women. Mm-hmm. And uh, then after my husband was a teacher as well. But when I realized that the um, teaching situation in the prisons went on for the full calendar year, that didn't really appeal to me. I'd rather like the tan month teaching year. <laughs> so from there, I left. I left the prison, and and there I had was um, supervisor of education there for a while. But I left, and then I joined what the, what's now the Limestone District School Board, and I taught there until it was near um, my retirement, and I saw an opportunity to go overseas. So I took an early retirement from the Frontenac, as it was called then, school board. And I went overseas and taught in uh, Egypt for two years. Mm. And while in Egypt, when my time was up, the faculty of education asked if I would come there and teach teachers. So I worked at the faculty of education for one year. But having had that, that overseas experience, I was missing the call to travel. So again, I applied to go overseas. And this time I got a job in China, right in Shanghai. And I stayed there for seven years and uh, returned here to um, Kingston. But since returning, you know, I just cannot sit still. (laughs) I, I don't know. People keep asking me, where do you get your energy? But I just feel like I have to keep moving. So Mm -hmm. one of the big things of which I'm proud that I did was that I helped to move the celebration of Black History Month off of Queens campus with the help of two student groups there, AXA, the African Caribbean Student Association, and QBES, Queens Black Academic Society. 
Mm -hmm. so, so we formed a partnership and we moved the Black History Month celebrations off campus. I, that was roughly six years ago. And um, I, I found that most interesting. And it also gave me a, a lead in to work with many of the Black students on Queens campus. And uh, that was most fascinating. I, I formed a really great partnership with them. I would invite them to my home. We would get together on campus and celebrate soul food Sundays. Mm. And uh, it, it was good. And much to my surprise, they um, nominated me to receive the GM Bennett Award, which I did receive from, I was honored with that back in 2019. And, uh, and so I've been really interested in, in working on the question of diversity and inclusion for quite a while. And uh, so that, so of course it's been a very, February is always a very busy month for me, but I think it's gonna be a little easier this February because I cannot go out mm -hmm. and, and meet in places. COVID has sort of kept me in, although we did celebrate through Zoom on Sunday last. Indeed, and now, well, as we are recording, we know it's now February and it is of course Black History Month. Uh, again, are you uh, involved in any of the activities that are happening virtually this month? And are there activities that you'll be participating in that you're particularly excited about? Yes, indeed. I, I was uh, one of the speakers on January 31st, which we, when we held our opening time here in Kingston. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm looking forward to uh, a time with the Agnes Etherington Art Gallery. I believe it's February 23rd when I'll be uh, discussing um, an artwork which this uh, artist, Sandra Brewster, uh, had me model in. And uh, she's got a type of artwork that's called The Blur. And so I'll, I'll be um, working with that. And uh, the other thing is, I always like to write stories. So I'm hoping I can find some time to write a story for the newspaper to be published during Black History Month. And I also will be preparing a speech to give to students in Limestone at the end of Black History Month. So I do have a few projects on the way, on the go. Okay, great. So let's hear more about University Council. What is, what is some of the work that you're doing directly on it? Well, I've been, I've been really uh, impressed with being part of the University Council. First of all, in just being there and hearing directly from the principal, just what road that the university is planning to take. And that is encouraging. And it's also been encouraging to see that there have been some changes implemented uh, already, which actually work toward eliminating anti-Black racism. Um, uh, I'm looking forward to having more time there, but right now that's about the limit of my um, involvement with council in that regard. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So what drove you to join university council and how long have you been on university council? I I'm into my first term and I'm just served two years. Well, I guess it comes back to EDII again. As I look around, I, I just felt that there wasn't enough diversity on the university council. And you know what people say, if you want to be responsible for making changes, you must be at the table. 
And so that in itself encouraged me because as I said, going back to working with the students for Black History Month, I, I just felt so awful that so many of them, and they, they were mainly Black students, um, they, they kept saying how alienated they felt. And I thought, hey, you guys have come to my city. I don't like to know that people have come to my city and they don't feel happy here. And that was a real driving force to me to see what I could do to try and help them to feel more comfortable. I mean, mm -hmm. the stories that they, that they would tell me were just amazing. Some of them would tell me how they spent the morning crying. Oh no. And I thought this is not good for mental health. And so um, this is what forced me to go. I, I went and spoke with the principal at the time, the former principal, and, and just to see if anything could be done. Um, a few things did happen. I don't think they came out of the meeting. I don't think so. But I'd like to know that I played a part in seeing some changes come about. And more recently, quite a few changes have come about. For example, they've set aside a place whereby Black students can go and meet. And this is one thing they, they wished for, a place that was private for themselves. So that when they were feeling upset and things, they went to a place where they knew they would meet people who would understand them. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's very important that, um, yes, yes, you can talk with people of a different culture, but sometimes when you, I know this to be true, when you meet a person who is of the same race as you, you just automatically feel, maybe they don't, but you feel that they understand you more. And so, so I was very um, happy to see that change come about. And, um, and I know that Queens is really uh, looking about setting up a chair in black studies. And this, this I think is really fantastic. When one considers it was the black man, Robert Sutherland, who actually saved Queens or else Queens today could have been a part of U of T or probably mm -hmm. no Queens at all. So I think that's very fitting. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And also the development of the new Black Studies minor program in arts and science. That's a pretty huge oh, it's uh, a, significant it, it accomplishment. Is. It is. Yes, indeed. And uh, also as well, a couple of other counselors actually remarked too on a massive increase in diversity in university council just in the last year uh, with the election of new, uh, new counselors who happen to be people of color. Yeah, there are. There's quite a grouping of us and uh, getting to the point where we feel we should set up our own little caucus, which is not a bad thing. <laughs> so I and um, I've heard of more uh, members uh, black members of staff. And that's a good thing. And I, I've been impressed with seeing um, as, as I surf the web and go to, um, I can't think of the word, but like tweets and that sort of thing. I keep seeing ads that come up that are encouraging black students to apply. So I, I really feel that Queens is setting out to change its image. And uh, I, I feel quite hopeful Amazing. Okay, thank you. So earlier you t you touched on um, concerns about students and and feeling like students that are crying all morning and needing space and needing companionship. 
and, and, and maybe a little bit of solidarity and empathy and understanding by the sounds of it. Do you have, do you have advice for students, particularly students this year, who are, of course, self-isolating because of the COVID-19 pandemic? Uh, this is obviously making things uh, difficult to really get the most out of the Queen's University experience. But do you have any do you have any advice for them on how to stay connected and stay healthy and, and well this year? Well, I would suggest that they uh, reach out to, if they have if they know of anyone else who has come to Queen's, probably from their high school, reach out to them and Queen's itself is putting more um, emphasis on having places that will, and people, like for example, to help people with their mental health. I, I would say to them, don't be afraid to reach out. You know, as you say, and it's particularly difficult during this period of COVID because many of them don't know who else is on campus because they're, they're studying online. Oh, it's, it's a difficult time. But I would say basically reach out to the university, let them know that you're having problems. And I think that they will be able to connect you with someone else. Or, and if they can't do that, reach back to their high school. If it was someone there who was helpful to them, some of their previous teachers, just give them a call. Let them know just what you're going through. And I'm sure they would make suggestions to the student. Okay. Okay. So in your view, why might alumni uh, consider joining university council in terms of driving the university's vision, but also being able to support students in the future? Yeah, that's it. I think, I think that we should give back to, to the university who is they, I mean, they have given us much, really. I think I, I've heard students over and over say how much just having that Queens piece of paper from Queens has helped in them securing a job, a great job. So I say, give back, um, join the council and then try and mentor, mentor other people and let them know how just being a part gives you a chance to, to suggest changes and in some cases make changes. So I would, I would strongly encourage all former students or alumni to try and get on council particularly if you're interested in bringing about change. Sage advice. Thank you very, very much. <laughs> Folks, we have been chatting with Judith Brown, Queen's University alumna, as well as a member of University Council. Thank you so much for sharing, uh, sharing about your time at Queen's, your career path since, and your time on University Council. We really do appreciate it. Thank you. It's been my pleasure.